The scripture today is from Matthew's Gospel. I'll be reading from chapter 4, verse 1, down through 11. Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, Since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied, again, it's written, don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I'll give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, Go away, Satan, because it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and angels came and took care of him. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I have heard it said, you probably have as well, that a person's greatest strengths can become their greatest weaknesses if left unchecked or taken to the extreme. In his best-selling book called First You Have to Row a Little Boat, Richard Bode writes about sailing with the wind, or as he calls it, running downwind, as some sailors tend to speak of it. When you're running with the wind, the wind is pushing you from behind. It's so it's easy to be lulled into a false sense of security, writes Bode, since my boat and I were moving at almost the same speed as the wind, I could barely feel its refreshing touch against my face. The warm sun beat down on my back. I slumped on the cockpit floorboards, telling myself if ever I could sink into blissful indolence, it, this was such a time. Now suddenly, without warning, Boat experienced what sailors call an accidental jibe. The wind got in behind his outstretched mainsail and threw the heavy wooden boom across the boat with such tremendous force that it had crashed into a stainless steel stay, ripped a fitting from the deck, and tipped the mast. Writes Bode, Had I been sitting upon the deck instead of down in the cockpit, my head surely would have been knocked from my neck. While his boat was being repaired, Bode had time to ponder the lesson that he had learned. I was to jibe many times in my life before I understood that going with the wind is the most dangerous course of all. I found it deceptively easy to let myself be lulled into that false sense of security that so often surrounds us when the wind is at our back. Now, the topic of this sermon deals with trials and temptations, but not the usual temptations the so-called temptations of weakness. Let's not talk about the temptations to cheat and to lie and to steal or, or to chew or to go with girls or boys who do, you know. 
These are all temptations of weakness, perhaps. Rather, let's ponder the so-called temptations of strength. The challenges we face when things are actually going pretty well, when we are, by all measurable means, succeeding in life, when we have the world by the tail, when the sun is shining and the wind is at our back. These kinds of temptations are often much more subtle, much more seductive, I suppose, if you want, you could say much more demonic. In the scripture lesson from Matthew, notice that the embodiment of evil, the one called the devil, does not tempt Jesus to fail or to, suc or to succumb to weakness, just the opposite. The devil tempts Jesus to succeed. Now, I don't have time to get into all the theological reasons in favor of or against a literal devil or not. Just go with the flow. Wherever you are theologically, it still works. The devil, whether the figure is intended to represent a sort of a, a symbolic embodiment of evil, which is, would be my more likely explanation, or an actual shadowy figure who literally is out to get you, it still works wherever you come down theologically. Go with me. Think about it. Don't you want the common people to rally around your ministry, Jesus? Just turn these stones into loaves of bread and you're going to have more followers than you know what to do with. You say you want to prove to people that you're truly on a mission from God. Hey, just throw yourself down from the temple and God will rescue you. You say you want to establish a kingdom here on earth. You say you want to rule over the nations. Well, it can all be yours if you just do one little thing. You say you want to be a success, Jesus. Well, it's as easy as A, B, C, one, two, three. Well, in this story, the devil, you see, tempts Jesus, as we've said, to succeed, not to fail. The devil tempts him not where he is weak, but where he is strong in places of life. And those of you who've spent any time in the business world would recognize, I think, what I'm talking about. The greatest temptations come not when you're performing poorly, but when you are succeeding, when you're doing one heck of a good job. It's like the story retired Bishop William Willimon used to tell when the boss would call you in and say, hey, we want to give you a bigger sales territory. We think you're going to go places. You've got all the right stuff. But I don't want a bigger sales territory, you might reply. I'm already away from home three nights a week as it is. What about my family? What about your family, says the boss? It's because of your family that we want you to take the job. You need a lot of money to support a family these days. You want to keep them happy, don't you? So take it for them. Take the promotion. Or let me use my own profession as an example. Clergy are very susceptible to temptation. And it happens not when the pews are empty and the church is going down the drain, but when the congregation is vital and alive and parking lots are full. It's so easy to be lulled into a false sense of self, to feel that we are more important than we really are, to believe that the rules we preach for, they, well, they don't apply to us, they apply for others. In the worst case scenarios, such temptations can lead clergy to misconduct, and it tends to begin from a place of strength, not weakness. It begins when things, usually I have found over the years, are going really well. In her important though disturbing book, Is Nothing Sacred?, Marie Fortune tells the story of the Reverend Peter Donovan. 
When Donovan came to First Church, the church began to attract new members almost immediately. And at first, the old-timers, they were glad that Donovan was bringing in so many new members and getting them into leadership positions, but eventually, a pattern began to emerge. Donovan recruited people to him, writes Marie Fortune. He elicited commitments to himself, not to the church. And many of the newcomers, they became more fans of Reverend Pete Donovan than they were members of First Church seeking to serve the world through the church. But never mind. Hey, the church was growing, the programs were flourishing, excitement was building, yet something was not quite right. The people felt manipulated. Others began to suspect that Donovan was acting inappropriately with certain females in the church, and a huge split developed in the church, some fiercely loyal to Donovan, others who felt that they had been duped, and in the end, Donovan lost his job. They said it was the adultery that did him in, but they were only partly right. The root of the problem was not just adultery, but an abuse of the power of his pastoral office. He had taken advantage of women who were most vulnerable, one of them grieving the death of her husband, another young, naive, and starry-eyed, another recently divorced. Clergy, like anyone else, need to understand the power of their position and honor appropriate boundaries. So as you can imagine, the outcome was disastrous. The women Donovan had preyed upon needed years of counseling to get their lives back together. The congregation was torn apart, and a previously dynamic pastor had lost his way, lost his job, ruined his life, at least for a while, as well as the congregation. Of course, sometimes it's not individual clergy who are at fault, but the institutional church itself. I own a beautiful book of reproductions of some famous paintings of biblical scenes. And the book contains a remarkable painting of Jesus' temptation, which is deeply disturbing for those of us who are employed by the church, I would add. In this masterpiece, painted by a 16th century Flemish artist, the devil comes to Jesus out in the wilderness. Do you know how the devil is dressed? He's dressed in the robe of a medieval monk with rosary beads in his hand. In other words, the devil is dressed up as the church. How many times has the church been tempted to use its position of strength to promote not evil dressed as evil, but evil dressed as good? Come, said the church in the Middle Ages. Give us your money and your young, able-bodied adults so that we can go and wage war against Muslim infidels and reclaim our holy city, the city of Jerusalem. Come, said the church at the time of Martin Luther. Hey, give us your indulgences, buy them generously, and, and then you can buy your loved ones out of purgatory. Come, come on, said parts of the church right here in America less than 200 years ago. If people in the Bible had slaves, then slavery must be God's will for us. And they used the Bible to justify it. Come on, says some parts of the church still today, but largely even more so 50 years ago. And still some fundamentalist parts of the church today. Hey, come on. If the Bible says women should be silent in churches, then who are we to think of ordaining them as deacons and elders and ministers? Come on. The Bible says it. And still today, many churches in this community, and most across Oklahoma for that matter, would say, come on. 
Being a lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender or queer person, it's in the Bible. You can't do that or be that as a Christian, let alone lead anything in the church. How many times has the church itself succumbed to temptations of strength when in fact we were using our own strength to harm others or to harm our witness in the world? And what can we say of those who rule the nation? One day in the nation's capital, I'm talking about Jerusalem this time, the most powerful man in the land, King David, eyed a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba, and he summoned her. And later he tried to hide the truth, and he enlisted the help of a trusted confidant who covered the whole thing over and made it look as if the leader was blameless. Did the confidant know all the facts, or did his fierce loyalty to his boss blind him to the truth? We may never know, but we do know that the leaders in discretion did not go unnoticed by God in the story. So God sent the prophet Nathan to confront the king with his sin, and they said it was adultery that caused King David to stumble, but they were actually only partly right. The root of the problem for the most powerful man in all the land was not just adultery, but an abuse of the power of his position. He took advantage of a starry-eyed young woman who didn't have the power or the prestige to say no. Now, this nation, the good old United States, has been experiencing some temptations of our own. As a nation, we too have been tempted in the strong places of our national life. How easy to ignore moral corruption and indiscretions in Washington as long as the nation is strong and powerful and as long as our side, whichever side that is, is getting its way. With military planes and warships flexing muscles in the hot spots all around the world, how convenient to remember that we are the strongest nation on the face of the earth now, the stock markets, they were just soaring, it seems like. And now, well, <laughs> I didn't have the heart to check one of my 401ks a couple of days ago. Will the slide last or will we lull ourselves back into thinking we're untouchable the moment the stock market starts to climb again? Hey, interest rates are fairly low for the moment, but behind closed doors, people are concerned about the rapidly rising national debt and what that might mean for our future. How easy to say that what happens behind closed doors doesn't matter. How convenient to believe that public and private morality have nothing to do with each other. How foolish to believe that when our elected officials go to the microphone and they tell us lies and outright fabrications that this has no effect on the soul of who we are as a people. We are not invincible. We never have been. We never will be. I do not believe we should run scared, for example, and lose our cool over the coronavirus outbreak or for the flu, for example, even though I may make some suggestions to modifying the way we serve communion today. But to do nothing and assume we are invincible might place us in even greater danger you see, for as long as our ship of state is on course with the sun shining, as long as our sails are full and the wind is at our back, how deceptively easy it is to be lulled into a false sense of security. 
Jesus successfully resisted temptation in this story from Matthew's gospel because he refused to blindly buy into his own image and his own success. And if we aim to follow in his footsteps as a people of God, but also as a broader community, we must not lose sight of who we have been called to be and who we have been called to become. For contrary to what we may believe, it is not in our moments of weakness that we are most susceptible to trials and temptations, but rather when we think we are the strongest and most invincible. We must remain humble. We must remain open to seeing our own limitations and make the choices that are best for the most and not just for our own individual success and image. May God help us these 40 days through Lent to have some very honest conversations with ourselves about what success truly looks like so that when trials and temptations come, we will stand on the same side of God and justice. Amen.